here we are again. Welcome to Season 5. Season 5, as I hope I showed with my brand new intro there that I just threw together today, actually, uh, is going to be a bit of an odd season. At this point in time, Brennan Braga, or Brannon Braga, I keep saying his name wrong, Brandon Braga has officially started exerting some degree of control over the show, and it's going to show in many ways, no pun intended, because the man likes to take risks, or try to, anyways. I'll be talking about some of the risks he took successfully, and some of the ones where Rick Berman came along and smacked him across the knees as he was trying to do it as we go throughout Season 5, and there's a few of those as we go throughout this season. But one of the biggest things he and Joe Minoski both wanted to do is start Season 5 in a new direction. They wanted to really establish something different, hence this episode. There were a few different script ideas that were tossed around at first. The biggest and most obvious one was one Joe Minoski was working on by himself, which was, uh... Well, it sounds really silly. Basically, that they were going through this vast, empty amount of space, and then they encountered this great alien tomb. And, oh my god, there's all this stuff inside, and treasure, and technology, and, and like, body horrors, and locusts, and... I'm not really kidding. But Minoski himself looked at it and said, No, no, this, this is crap. And basically shelved the whole idea. And Braga and him kibitzed a bit, and they said, Why not start the season off really establishing a bit of tone, really trying to figure out how this this is going and really go deep into the character stuff. And since Braga and Minoski both are really good at that kind of character stuff, it's no wonder so much of the dialogue kind of runs in this episode and so much of the character elements of this episode really work well. In actual fact, I almost regret that there was a B-plot of this episode, the whole threat with the absorbing aliens and the Malon showing up and all that fun stuff, because I almost feel like it detracts from the rest of the episode. And the thing with the Vortex is a little obvious. I'll talk about that when we get there. But one of the biggest reasons they wanted to do this Void thing was they wanted to really smack Janeway across the face. Now, I've said it before and I've said it again, and yes, we're finally going to be talking about Janeway. The, the Janeway character arc was basically pushed forward by Mulgrew herself. And yet, even in this thing, both both the uh, writers involved, and Braga himself was very big on this idea, said, why not have her be hit with the one thing she hasn't dealt with yet? Time. See, when you're constantly trying to keep your ship running and facing a threat every week and working on supplies and, and doing all this diplomacy and aggressive aliens and all the other things that they've faced, you don't really have time to sit and ponder. Excuse me. Sneeze attack. Let's rewind a bit. Uh, there are two, uh, some, some types of leaders handle stressful situations very well. Some type of leaders handle calm type of situations well, and rarely do the two mix. In real life, this is usually referred to as a wartime leader versus a peacetime leader. Janeway's leadership style is actually solidified in this episode, and arguably everything that I perceive as the real Janeway, not the schizophrenic Janeway, not the Janeway who bounces all over the place in terms of her perspective, most of that comes from season one, two, and, and the end of seven, if you're curious. But the actual Janeway, the real character that I perceive whenever I think of that name, is the one that is codified and solidified in this episode. This is a woman who is a wartime leader. She is very good at handling stress, difficult situations, crises, you know. She can make hard choices, and she can make them quickly. She'll be doing this in the future, too, several times in this season. But, when given time to reflect, when given nothing to actually work on or occupy your mind with, 
she crumbles. Many, much has been said of the fact that Janeway was destroyed by the journey, and that she has basically buckled under the pressure of being the captain all this way. This episode puts an interesting light onto that by giving the simple fact that guilt has been riding her this entire time. And here's the really weird part. In my opinion, someone who is that kind of person is not the best kind of leader. If I can pull a TNG out of, out of here, I forget the name of the episode, uh, To Thine Own Self, I believe. They talk extensively, and actually they have some subtle hints of exactly what it takes to be a leader. To be a leader, you need to turn to your best friend and say, Go die to save all these people. And you need to be able to make that choice, and you need to be able to live with it. Janeway has shown that she can make that choice. She has not shown that she can live with it. And that's the catch right there. The guilt has been riding her this whole time. She has been basically crushed under it, and she has been so desperate to prove herself, to do right by the crew, to... And it explains so many of her decisions she's made, questionable decisions she's made in the series up to this point. And it all culminates here. Janeway, alone, brooding, because... And this is the best part. The reason she isolates herself, it's not self-pity, not really. It's not woe is me. It is the belief that she is not the captain the crew deserves. And so she puts Chakotay in charge, trusts, it's worth noting, Chakotay to be in charge, really puts the faith of, I mean, she obviously cares about this crew and this ship, right? She hands that all over to Chakotay. Now that may or may not sound like a big deal to you, but to me that sounds like a huge deal. And it shows how much uh, her, her relationship, if you could call it that, with Chakotay has, has been and, and is at this point in time. She trusted him to be the captain that she felt she was not capable of being. It's worth noting that some fans find this to be schizophrenic. That they feel that this is completely out of character for Janeway. And that's fine, because as we've said before, the only person who is actually thinking about a character arc for Janeway was the actress. So it's all ultimately up to our interpretations. But as I've also said before, Janeway herself, or excuse me, Janeway herself, Mulgrew herself did also feel this was the, the path that her character arc had been taking, most especially personified in this one. The way she portrays it is perfect. And you could tell she'd been building it up in her head, you know, over the past season or two, or even three maybe, who knows. But the Chakotay as captain thing is also an interesting thing because Chakotay does actually take command in every way, basically, in this episode, and does a damned good job of it. He even does that when Janeway herself removes herself from isolation. She comes out in the crisis because, you know, she's a wartime leader, right? She knows how to deal with this. And yet it is a great irony that the person who was doing good as a peacetime leader was the former Maquis. But I mention this because this also shines an interesting light on Chakotay, and the Chakotay I wish we'd seen more of. The leader. The commander. The William Riker, basically, if I could just be blunt. Because, like Riker, Chakotay shows himself several times throughout the series to be a good wartime and peacetime leader. And that's a rare trait. And this is probably the first real time we get to see his peacetime leadership skills in action. And he's a damn good job, all things considered. Keeps on top of things, maintains a schedule, even though there's no real point in it because people work better when they have a schedule. 
you know, he, he makes a point of going ahead and being the go-between and taking the responsibility on himself. He does a lot of things that are good leadership decisions in the calm. And then when Janeway comes back out and they have to deal with a crisis situation, he makes good decisions when now back in the wartime situation. And, of course, he's been doing that this whole time. Every time he's allowed to actually act, of course. But the whole point here is that some people, and this has really gone to the core characterization here, some people, when they go under incredible hardships, emerge stronger for it. That which does not kill me does not make me stronger. I make me stronger by refusing to let it kill me. And that's how some people are. Other people, they are crushed by the circumstances. They are lesser for what they went through. There's no shame in that. Not really. It's just very human. And I've always felt that Janeway is in the latter category. I also don't think she's the only captain of Star Trek to be in that category because that happens to Archer, too. And the good chunk of Enterprise in, the, in Season 3 and Season 4, we see what happens to Archer when he has to face these kinds of circumstances. And he buckles. He makes bad decisions. He tries to do things himself, even though it's irresponsible. He is not a leader in the same exact manner overall that Janeway does here. We actually see in Enterprise as well another example of someone who actually rises to the occasion rather than falls to it. I'm speaking of Tucker, specifically who ironically actually does a really good job during that arc and actually becomes a character. But I don't want to talk too much about Enterprise here. You know, ironically, I feel like I don't really have anything else to actually add <laughs> to the Janeway thing. If anybody has any questions or comments or feels like I forgot something, feel free to share it. But, hmm. Now... The... I, I want to give amazing props to this episode. This is among my favorite episodes in Voyager. This is like somewhere jumbled in there in like the top eight or so, or however many are out there at the, at the top of the echelon. There are actually two such episodes that are in my top favorites in season five. So I'm pretty sure this is going to be a good season. It's just also going to be a weird season, because like I said, Rick Berman is really starting to focus his control over the show at about this point in time. You'll see what I mean later. He didn't really do that much of that here. But one of the things that is indicative of Braga's perspective is Captain Proton. Now, I know Captain Proton's somewhat divisive. Every Voyager or Star Trek in general convention I've gone to where Captain Proton has come up, usually the, re the response is mixed. Some people really, really like it. I am one of those, by the way. I love Captain Proton. And some people really, really don't. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But the unique difference is there because what is the previous holographic re recurring thing we had? That frickin' Victorian-era novel way back in, uh, I want to say, season two that Janeway kept going to? What did they do with the Victorian novel? Nothing. It was there because Jerry Taylor wanted to... Or I may be using the wrong name. I don't want to misquote the wrong name. So one of the people in charge wanted to do those kinds of stories, and so they just flung it on the holodeck and said, here it is. But at no point did they use that to explore Janeway as a character or explore the setting of, of Star Trek or to examine any themes that might have been related to the episodes. It was literally filler. Pure, padding, grind. Nothing else. Captain Proton, in the three or four episodes of the Poison, always has something to do with what's going on and adds to the essence of what's going on, either in terms of character or setting or plot or themes or something, and has a whole episode devoted to it, which is actually 
not in my like top eight, but like in the category just below that, you know, the the, the art category of Voyager episodes, it's up there because it's really enjoyable and very enthusiastic in its over the top appeal. There's a reason I put it in my intro crawl for season five, after all. But the reason it's really indicative of Braga's perspective is not just he wanted to do something with the holodeck, which he did, but that it was a risk. That really is Braga's perspective in a nutshell. He wanted to try things. I'm going to talk more about Braga a little bit later, I think. I already have picked out a specific episode that I think is a good one to really talk about the man. Uh, <laughs> for now, I'm just going to leave you with the thoughts that I like the fact that he was at least trying, whereas most everyone else was not prior to this point in time who was actually in charge of Star Trek. I actually weep because I wonder what Voyager would have been like without Rick Berman. Really, I do. Hmm. So, um, I already mentioned the Chakotay thing. Um... Chakotay running the ship was actually a really good way to lead into the story arc here. It's almost subtle in its lack of subtlety, if that makes any sense. We don't see Janeway for like the almost the entirety of the first act. It's just Chakotay running this and then doing this, and he gets a lot of screen time. And it's just enough off that the whole time the, vo the viewer is supposed to be thinking, where's Janeway? You know, where is she? It's, it's just odd that she's just absent. And then we finally see it, and it just clicks like... Oh, you know, it, it makes perfect sense. By the way, I have to give ridiculously huge props to basically every element of this episode. Let's talk about the special effects team. The FX team tore their hair out trying to make this episode work. In the end, the solution sounds obvious, but from a graphical perspective, pulling off what they did with the outside shots was not easy. They actually did this whole thing where they wanted to have... The, the ship had to be visible. But normally there's some kind of external light in space. At least that's the theory that they've always gone by. But there is none. So they actually created effectively a whole new... It was basically a copy of the original model with all the light sources removed and they added brand new ones where the normal lights were on the ship. In other words, creating the idea that the ship was lighting itself, which was a brilliant effect and really gets across the feeling of just how absent this entire region of space is. I also like the idea of the void in general. The very concept that you can encounter something like this in deep space across our galaxy is fascinating. Something that would literally take, as they point out, two years to cross. Now then, the vortex thing shows up, but shrug. Um, I also like uh, the fact that the crew is apparently stir-crazy, despite the fact that they have access to a holodeck. Now that's interesting for two reasons to me. Number one, it speaks to the mindset of these people. In other words, the holodeck is very normal to them, and they know it's fake. It's another form of entertainment just like any other. In other words, you might be looking at that weird, but try to picture for a moment if you had to stay at home and do whatever it is you do for fun and nothing else for a long, long periods of time. We're talking uh, 53 days, I think, or something like that is how long they've been doing it when the episode starts, and the prospect of doing it for two more years so if you like reading, try reading those books for two months solid. No job, no going out, nothing else. Try playing video games for two months. Same video games, by the way. Try going out and watching movies for two months. You see where I'm going with this. Repetition leads to the breakdown of the mindset, right? 
But the other reason I find it fascinating and indicative of their mentality is I've always had this sneaking suspicion that the modern era Trek people don't know how to be creative with the holodeck. And I know that sounds like a weird thing. But these people have the access to the most advanced and well, the best UE of what is effectively a create-your-own-interactive-story-kit that has ever existed. Imagine if you had the tools to to completely mod all of, oh, I don't know, Fallout 4, for example. You know, uh, all the scripting, all the designs, all the story, all the voice actors, everything. The ability to literally completely make a new game in Fallout 4. And you could do it just by talking to it and looking at the results and saying, eh, a little bit more. That is an insane level of customization in the UE, and incredibly user-friendly. But they never really do anything like that with it, do they? They watch or read or play through stories they already know, or occasionally they'll write their own, and that's it. I find that very concept fascinating because, and I don't want to get too much into philosophy, but I feel that is actually a form of cultural stagnation. The idea that the people of this era have already, at this point in time, which uh, I guess would be uh, 12 or so years after the holodeck has been introduced to the setting, so, roughly, that, that's a rough estimation, because it was brand new at the beginning of TNG, don't forget. They had just started putting it on ships. Um, anyways, so, you know, it's something that they've already become so acclimated to, so accustomed to, that the very idea of trying something new doesn't occur to them, because why would they? They already have what they want, if you understand what I mean. It's hard to explain this because I'm really bad at explaining things. No, really, I am. The idea here is if you have what you want, you generally are less likely to try new things because you're because it's a risk-taking thing. In other words, when you try new things, you might not like it, and you and you you know you might not do that. But when you do try new things, and this is proven historically in like every aspect of human society, you will find some new things that you like. But it is a risk. It is expensive. It is costly, and you'll find things that you just don't like. This applies to food, to clothing, to uh, to jobs, to entertainment. You know the whole the whole shebang. And it's ironic, isn't it, that this very concept of being risk-taking, the being the thing that, that Starfleet isn't, is so indicative of Rick Berman's personality and perspective, isn't it? No, let's just do Star Trek. Don't try to... Don't, don't, don't deviate. Don't deviate. We know Star Trek. We know Star Trek. We're just going to stay back. We're going to do things with Star Trek. Star Trek. Star Trek. Now let's make one thing clear. There is a problem with the risk mentality, and that is, well, this should sound obvious, the risk part. When you try new things, statistically speaking, you're going to have more failures than successes. But the whole point of that is, let's say you do 10 new things, 10 new foods, 10 new job titles, 10 new forms of entertainment, you know, new, new animes or new movies or new franchises or whatever, and you hate nine of them. But there's one you like. Now, that's a lot of expense and effort put forth into that one, but now you have something new to try, something new to explore. Let's say I've never tried sushi before, and I would never know how much I love sushi, because I do, I absolutely adore it. Anyways, that's all. I just, I just kind of wanted to talk about this topic, because it's the kind of thing I've always felt has been kind of present in Star Trek, ever since the TNG era, basically. Moving on, moving on. Uh, checking my notes here. Um... 
the director of this episode was a man named David Livingston, and it showed immediately. Uh, the man has very distinct style in his directorial approach, and uh, when I was watching it, I was like, wait a minute, and I checked, and yeah, sure enough, it was him. I've actually mentioned this man several times before. He is an amazing director. In my opinion, he is one of the best uh, directors, I'd say like in the top five of directors that they've ever had in, uh, in the non-original series era of Star Trek. Sorry, I'm just putting some calamine on a, on a mosquito bite here. <laughs> One of the downsides of this new location is mosquitoes. Um, so he does an amazing job with it. Really pulls some energy and, and the right emotion and the right style of camera work. And just He does some great stuff. There's one shot I love where they leave the meeting and you see Chakotay and the camera just sticks on him as he leaves one set, goes to the other, which by itself is harder to do than you'd think because usually the sets aren't actually physically connected in real life. So they had to connect them for that. He makes the shot. The camera stays with him, which, again, harder to do than it sounds. And he sits on the bridge, and you just see all his frustration and all his anger and all his upset. And it really just highlights just how bad Chakotay is getting, um, you know, with, with, with the void, you know. Um, the character stuff in this episode is just knocked out of the park. I'm not going to go down the list. I thought about it, but, I mean... The Harry stuff, yes. The Tom stuff, yes. The Bellana stuff, yes. The Tovok stuff, yes. The Seven stuff, yes. The Chakotay stuff, yes. The Doctor stuff, yes. The Neelix stuff, yes. Every aspect of it. This is basically an ensemble episode. No character really gets more screen time than any other. Even Janeway. Especially given how much she was absent from the initial. I, I guess you could argue Chakotay gets more screen time than anyone. But there is no main character, really, of this episode. And I think that's one of the selling points of why I love it so much. I've always loved ensemble cast in general. And um, this this does a really good job of that. I also like the scene where, where, where uh, Tom brings Seven onto the holodeck. You may wonder why I like that. It's indicative. Tom isn't an idiot. In fact, he's very smart. And that's Seven. She is incompatible with the holodeck. She, she is still barely getting used to the idea of entertainment, you know? So the very concept of going on there and playing pretend is something that she is still effectively alien to her. And Tom knows that. But god damn it, I need to get on there and do something with the... Seven, seven, come with me, come with me. And it just speaks to the desperation of the man, especially Tom. Of all the members of the cast, Tom is probably the most action-oriented. I don't mean, like, action hero or whatever. I mean doing something. Tom is someone who likes to do. I mean, the worst thing you could do to this man like Tom Paris is put him in solitary for 30 days. <clears throat> I don't like that, by the way. <laughs> but we'll get there when we get there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I feel like it just really showed how desperate he was getting and how, how bad it was getting. That he was just like, oh, God, come on, let's go do something. <laughs> you know? And then the, uh, and then the B-plot hits. Now, credit where credit is due, the first aspect of the B-plot was terrifying. Imagine you're on a spaceship for a moment. I know you've pictured it before. I have, too. There's no shame in it. Imagine you're in space, da, 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 and imagine all the power gets cut. I once had a discussion with a friend about the worst possible things that could happen on a spaceship in Star Trek, and, we, and there were two big ones, or three, excuse me, big ones we came up with. Number one is, sir, we're detecting the Borg. <laughs> Number two is losing all power. And number three, if you're curious, is uh, losing the inertial dampeners. Uh, long story on that one. But basically, let's just say that it would be hard to go any speeds at all. Or you basically have to maintain whatever speed you're at, or else you'd probably be paced. 
But yeah, so losing all power in a ship, that's terrifying. And they display it perfectly. They don't, they, they take their time. They show this thing. They've had this ensemble cast. They've been putting all these pieces and showing how all the characters are reacting to this, this, these doldrums. And then they show each one of them, one by one, watching as the power goes out around them. And then we see the outside of the ship blink out and we just have a black screen. Which, by the way, is why we've got this today. Very chilling. Very appropriate. And the idea of them handling the crisis so well really struck me, too. And I, saw, I say that because usually this is Voyager. These guys don't know how to handle emergency situations. I make fun of them constantly for that. And yet in this case, not only are the main characters rushing around trying to get the emergency packs, they immediately know how to find the flashlights on the bridge despite total pitch blackness. They've already got them. They're already working with trying to get power regulated. You know, they're doing all this stuff just bam, bam, bam. And in the background, you can hear the secondary characters who are talking about, okay, maybe we could get the plasma manifolds connected to this, maybe we could get this power center there. And Janeway comes out with the emergency power packs that they've been store-plusing this whole time, which was good establishment. That was a good Chekhov's gun uh, placed over there on the side. So we can get all this stuff. It's funny because they didn't even need it. But it showed competency. It added to the energy of the scene and really helped flesh out the character's ability to deal with the situation, which is arguably the theme of this entire episode, how we deal with things. So many of the characters did not deal well with the absence. Neelix literally developed a phobia, um, which was giving him panic attacks and palpitations and the inability to frickin' breathe. Tom and Balana both started arguing with each other because it was a way to express themselves. It was a way to vent. Speaking as someone who's been in several relations in my life, you would be surprised how often one argues when you don't actually have any interest in the argument yourself. You literally just want to... And you could see that as they're talking. Because he's goading her and she's goading him and they're just both goading into it. And you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, you know, that's how they're dealing with it. Chakotay is dealing with this whole situation by basically getting more and more strict, trying to get more and more disciplined. Probably the one who handles it best overall. Tuvok tries to meditate. And even in his own subtle way, Tuvok shows that the absence is bothering him. He literally cannot clear his mind without the viewpoints of the stars. And so forth and so on. I'm not going to go down the whole list. But this is how they've all adapted to that. Then we see how they adapt to a crisis situation. The moment there's something to actually do, everyone is right on it. Go, 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 fix, go, right, do this. Okay, aliens, shoot the aliens. Okay, do this. This even Tom, who is practically Mr. MacGyver of this sh of this episode of this show, finds a flashlight on the holodeck and gets it working. By the way. I've actually had some people call that a uh, plot hole. And the way the holodeck work in the, works in this episode is probably inconsistent. But I don't think it is for two simple reasons. Reason number one, all of the items on the holodeck, I've always believed, are temporarily replicated. Only the distant stuff, you know, the, the great scenes and the, the skylines and, you know, all that fun stuff, that's the light projection. But for the stuff you're actually interacting with, it's effectively a set, replicated temporarily while you're still there. So if the holodeck program was effectively frozen in mid-thing, all that matter would still be there. Hence why the flashlight, which has batteries in it, which does work, actually works, even though the power has been drained. Make sense? Because it was an actually replicated item. That also explains how the little ray gun actually worked, too. One thing that I don't like, though, there's a little line that throws that theory out the window, and that line is computer disable safety protocols. The power's out. How's the computer going to do that? How's it going to respond to her? 
I mean, have you ever had your computer go off? Have your computer off, go off sometimes. Just have the power off, and then start typing on your keyboard and see what happens sometimes. I feel like that scene would have worked much better if she just shot him. Remove that line, remove the blip from the computer, and just... Still would have worked. And it would have made it much more coherent and, and sense-making from a logical perspective. But whatever. I'm willing to forgive the goof. Because, you know, good episode. Um... And then, of course, how we deal with situations, it comes in in the finale. The whole thing with Janeway being like, I am going to sacrifice myself rather than ask you guys to sacrifice another two years of your lives. And their reaction to that was, no, you're frickin' not. Let's talk about that dilemma, shall we? I've said this before two and a half years ago now, back in uh, October, what was it, October 12th? Something like that. It was a while ago. And I said that it was a false dilemma. There were dozens of ways they could have thought their way around that, blah, blah, blah. Now, it is possible that's armchair generally. It is possible. She was in a crisis situation, blah, blah, blah. I'm not, I'm not going to argue that. What I am going to say is that in this situation, you, you can't really armchair general this one because they actually had the time to actually think about the circumstance and situation. The irony is they came up with the exact plan that was most commonly stated to be the plan for how to get around caretaker and still get home. In other words a timed detonation. Because that's exactly what they do. Now, there's some other niggles in that, but that is how they accomplish their goal. They have a few you know, time-delayed torpedoes which will go off after they're already gone, or through, blah, blah, blah. It worked. Made sense. So I don't really mind this solution so much as I did back in Caretaker, because it showed they were actually thinking about it in this one. So props to the writers on that. Um... A couple other things. There's a lot of little touches in this episode, really, and I just want to comment on two more. Then I'm going to cut this off into the twilight. Um, number one, I liked a lot of the innovation that the crew showed during circumstances. My favorite specific instance is Tuvok's usage of a photon torpedo as a flashlight. Now, I know a flashlight is a bad term. A flare is a little more effective. But for those of you who have done survival training, like, like myself, you know that one of the things that is commonly said if you're in a particular type of situation, you cannot see where you're going or what you're doing, and you need to know where something is, a flare gun is actually a valid thing to do, as long as you're very careful with using it, because those are not toys. And that's exactly what he does. He sets out a photon flare. Brilliant idea. The other thing I wanted to comment on is the Malon. I'll be talking about the Ferengi when I get to TNG. But I've always felt the Malon are a slightly more well-done presentation of what the Ferengi were supposed to be in concept, if not in execution. I know that sounds weird, but here's the problem with the Ferengi. I'm going to discuss that very briefly. The Ferengi were supposed to be, you know, Yankee traders, capitalists, industrialists, etc. In, in execution, or no, in concept, excuse me, and then in execution they were supposed to be the next big threat to the Federation. These two things do not make sense at all, and I'll talk more about that when we get to TNG. It's literally illogical for these two things to be a thing. But what we have here is this idea, the, the, the industrialist, the, 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 the selfish, greedy, short-sighted short mentality, all that fun stuff, that, that is actually very well presented in the Malon, and we see actually a decent amount of that in the couple, next couple episodes, not immediate, but over this season we'll see the Malon a couple more times, and I feel like they're a better presentation of that idea of the Ferengi than the Ferengi are. That's all I got. Great episode, great acting, great directing, great writing. Can't wait for season five, Into the Darkness.
dropped out of warp. We're losing power. Switch to auxiliary. No effect. 